This episode of the Detox Podcast is brought to you by Rebel Riot Printing. Celebrating their 10th year in business, Rebel Riot is locally owned and family operated, offering custom printed tees with no minimums and fast turnaround. And by Bitsbox. Bitsbox teaches kids to code, real JavaScript, real devices, and really fun. Hands down the most fun way for curious kids ages 6 to 14 to learn coding. Use promo code DETOX for $20 off any subscription order of $50 or more. That's D-T-A-L-K-S DETOX for $20 off any order of $50 or more with BitsBox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a podcast for dads where this dad talks about life, kids, and stuff. I'm your host, Joe Shaw. And on today's episode, I've got very special guest, former professional soccer player, current Major League Soccer analyst, and author of the book, When the Dream Became Reality, Mr. Bobby Warshaw. Bobby, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is really exciting. Man, your book is just incredible. I've read it, honestly, like, truth be told, no smoke. I've read it twice, cover to cover. It's just, it's a great read. It's an enjoyable read. If you like sports memoirs or you like memoirs in general, it's just a great book. And I'm excited to really kind of dive a little bit deeper into that, into you, and uh, just kind of your views on a lot of different topics. So it's going to be a great, great show today. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for reading it at all, more or less twice. <laughs> I think if anybody that reads it or you know, maybe hears this, we'll understand why that, that means so much to me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so first of all, I've got a kind of multi-part question. Uh, I, I wanted to know, uh, for our listeners, uh, if you can explain, first of all, like why why write a book uh, and why specifically your memoir and why was summer 2017 the right time to do it? Okay, well, let's start at the, at the second part of that. Okay. I'll say summer 2017 because 2016 was my last season playing. And going into the season, I pretty much knew that I was done. I was I was done before that season. I had just been playing in Norway, and my team got relegated. And getting relegated just zaps it out of you. You know, sure. it takes a lot of the enjoyment out of the sport. Uh, you know, which is probably a whole other conversation. But <laughs> after that season, I, I was just, I was done to stop. I was ready to stop playing. I was ready to move on to whatever was next in life. Uh, but I didn't know what to move on to. You know, I didn't really know. I didn't have a resume. I didn't know what a job application was. I didn't know if there was some website that all unemployed people go on to try and find a job. So I decided to play one more season, and I played it back in my hometown in USL with a team that I had grown up training with when I was in high school and home from, from college. And USL being the, the second division, right? The United Soccer League? Yep, exactly. And I played with the Harrisburg City Islanders, who are a really small club, you know, not much budget. But I got a chance to play in front of my parents for the first time in you know 10 years, and I had the chance to transition. So while I was playing that season, I studied for the GMAT. So I took the GMAT. I did business school applications and I did the book. So I kind of did all three of those things at once. Right. And so why, why 2017? Partially just because like I had the time, I had the, the energy for it. But I also wanted to write a book that was totally natural and raw. And I think if I were to write this book, well, I know if I were to write this book now with the same stories, I would tell them differently because the emotions aren't as intense. I've had a chance to reflect on it. But I do think that there is something unique and natural about really writing about all of these things while they're at their peak intensity in my life. Yeah. In fact, you even have the 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 little 
blurb right at the beginning of the book that talks about, you know, uh, life happens fast. The stories involve heated moments with escalated emotions. You recount the stories as best you can, but you do not claim that they are the perfect truth, just that they're your truth. And I think that's so appreciative because you have a lot of people that are like, this is exactly how it happens, especially in like sports memoirs. And what I appreciate is you're saying like, hey, this, this, I'm not saying this is exactly what happened. I'm saying this is my perspective in the moment with my emotions and my personality. This is it. This is one side of the story and it's my side. Take it or leave it. Exactly. And you know what prompted that a little bit is I went back and read a bunch of memoirs, including Andre Agassi's book, Open. Have you mm-hmm. read that one? I have not read that one, no. So I consider that the best sports book, certainly the best memoir, probably the best overall sports book. And it really was the catalyst for what I wanted to do. I wanted to do that for someone not quite at Agassi's tier and also for soccer. But in his book, you know, he's talking about like the third set of some random tournament 20 years ago. And I want to be like, dude, there is no chance you remember all of these details. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. So I, I wanted to put a little caveat at the beginning of my book to acknowledge that there are some gray areas. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, man, it's just, it's that you really feel that emotion. It's, it's, it. I mean, I'm I'm a huge soccer fan t- to begin with, so I think it was easy for me to kind of slide right into the narrative and the stories and, and get to hear it. But also, I mean, you know, I, I know you from FC Dallas, so I was also extra excited to kind of get to those portions. And, and because I remember, like, where I was when you recount, like, I mean, I wasn't, mm-hmm. like, on the team, in the team, in the locker room. But, I mean, like, as a fan or as somebody that would come to the games, interact with you, I remember you know, around when these moments happen. And it, it's it's interesting seeing a different perspective of that. Were the things that I said, I guess we can get there when we get to Dallas, but I'm curious to hear if you were surprised by some of the incidents or my interpretation of what, what happened. Oh, we can just we can just jump right in. I mean, we can, uh, you know, actually, let's wait a minute. Let's build up to it. I really want to talk about your, specifically the introduction to your book. I remember I read this and I sent you a message that it gave me literal chills. Just the, because you start the book at the beginning of your, or at, I'm sorry, at the ending, the end of your journey, you're with the Harrisburg City Islanders. You've mm-hmm. go, just gotten shellacked. You're going to sign autographs for some local kids. Some kids are telling you that you played great and you're thinking, no, I didn't. Do you not know soccer at all? But what you actually say is thank you. And you sign and you post for pictures and and you have this moment where you're looking at all of these impressionable kids and you want to tell them like, it's not worth it. Don't do it. Don't put yourself through this. But you don't, and you hold back. And I, I want, I want you to kind of talk us through the complex emotional state you have a little bit uh, a second ago, but really the complex emotional state of of one experiencing that moment, and two putting that into you know putting that into words, kind of reliving it again and again. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> real funny. Well, it's, I'll actually give you a quick in, like, insight into what it's like doing the book. So. The reason I did that story first is because, you know, if I were a better, better storyteller, as, you know, some people are when they have got, you know, Pulitzer Prize winners that help with their memoirs, <laughs> the whole point of a memoir is it attacks some singular question in your life. An autobiography goes all the way through your life, and a memoir does one singular problem. Right. You know, a good author really, really hides that problem somewhere in the middle. But I was like, you know what? I don't know how to do that. I'm just going to throw the problem front and center. You know, I'm going to start this book out with the problem. And then we're going to spend 250 pages working through that problem. Yeah. Um, so that's why, that's why I kind of come in so hot is because I didn't know how, how else to build this plot line and to build this, this struggle throughout the, the pages. And it's really good though, because you see a lot of, you see a lot of stories that are like, you know, I was five years old and I was lacing up my cleats and, and it's like, yeah, we kind of, we've kind of seen that a few times, you know, mm-hmm. and it's nice to really just like literally 
fall face first into the action and just yeah. really feel like, oh, this is this is where we end up. And and I'm mm-hmm. I'm always a big fan of stories where when you know where you end up, working backwards to get there is really interesting for me. So that was yeah, it was it's very very much um not what I expected in a very good way. So going to to the question about that I don't know how to honestly I don't know how to describe it any better than it than I did in the book. Right. Uh, and just in the fact that I would say largely the one of the themes of the book is just this dichotomy on what I know is right and what I feel. And even though I knew I was being a, a, a poor sport or a bad person or a bad role model in that moment, I undoubtedly felt anger towards those kids. You know, yeah. I wanted those kids to be so far away from me. And yet I knew that I was being horrible and I just couldn't control it. Sure. Um, and there's this weird part about sports too, which I'm sure you saw in the locker rooms, is that there's actually a power in that too. Like one of my powers throughout my entire career was how much I cared and my level of intensity and my ability to really get angry and use that to my advantage. And then you get to these moments with these kids and you realize, what am I doing? What am I in this for if I can't? be kind to this kid asking for my autograph. And I think that that was really the moment when I said, is this worth it for my life? You know, is this really who I want to be? The whole point, especially as kids in this country, maybe in other countries, they play sports to become professionals. In our country, we play sports and our parents push us, push us into it for the value and the morals and, and the things we learn, how that make us become better people. And there I was kind of, you know, supposedly living the dream but I really did not like who I had become. And you've got an interesting uh, uh, phrase in there that you talk about, you know, can someone be a good person and a good player? And that's something that you, you kind of attack that question head on a, a couple of different ways throughout the book. Because in, in, in one instance, and I don't quite remember where you were at, and you can probably remember, but you talk about you're trying to, to have peace about the situation and, and not worry so much and just be a good leader and just have fun wherever you're playing. And you're like, but nobody's reacting. Now we're getting worse. Now people hate me more. And it's like, because, because you weren't like playing yeah. at the same intensity. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was in Sweden, and I had just made a jump to a club that really could have helped could have helped catapult my career. But I showed up you know, two weeks into preseason because the paperwork hadn't, hadn't gotten done. And they had all their friends. And like the first two days in the locker room, they barely said hi to me. I, they, they barely acknowledged me. And I kind of said to myself, I need to be liked. Right. So usually on the field and – you know the funny part about this usually in the field i was really intense i was pushing people i was yelling at them but for most of my life i was still the favorite you know a, a, one of the favorite teammates anybody ever had because of all those things because of how much i cared and then i went to sweden and i didn't do that i tried to be a nice guy i tried to not yell at people but it came off as if i didn't care and all of a sudden people hated me it was the first time in my life that even though this is the one time I specifically tried to be like that they disliked me. And there's little things, right? So like, I'm in this foreign country. I don't know anybody within, you know, however many miles. And practice would end and I would ask them, hey, guys, you want to go to lunch? And they'd be like, oh, no, sorry, we're busy. And so I'd walk into the city. I'd walk around by myself and I'd see like six of them sitting out on the patio having lunch. Wow. And I would literally – it's the kind of thing you see in like a teen movie. Yeah. You know, like a, <laughs> yeah. Where like they're like – they walk around, they like put their hood up and turn around and walk in the other direction. So they don't have that awkward moment of seeing the friends laugh without them. You can't sit with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so a, it's that, was girl's just, reference. that was a, a really, that was a really uh, defining moment for me. 
And it, it, it stuck with me to this day to the fact that, you know what, if I want to go down, I'm going to go down swinging. I'm going to go down being myself, um, behaving the way that I do and specifically just caring. Yeah. You know, like there's just, just care about what you do and that becomes infectious to the people around you. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and in fact, even talking about caring, you, you reference a moment where in your past, you have a friend of yours who is a, like an all-star swimmer, but he's on, he's on the JV var, on the JV soccer team. And he asks you to, if you'll help him in practice and you're like, sure, no, no problem. But you talk about your inner dialogue. You're wondering why would this person want to practice at something he's never going to be excellent at you know he can be an excellent swimmer but he's wasting his time practicing with me when he's not going to he's never going to be good enough to go pro or to make a living or, or whatever the case may be and it's it's really interesting to me because like you talked like you talked about earlier we are taught to go into sports for the value for the team camaraderie for a bunch of different values as opposed to going into it because this is your career path. And, and that's kind of like the, his mentality, but your mentality was very, you know, I've got limited time and opportunity and, you know, I don't want to waste it on in this situation. So I, I wonder, is that, is that, do you feel is typical of a lot of other uh, teammates or, or individuals that you've worked with or played with or encountered, or is that something that is, I don't want to say unique to just you, but unique to a much smaller sector. And you had to struggle with that. I don't quite know if that came out exactly how I meant it to, but no, for sure. I'm a big believer. And I say this early in the book and I'll start here before I go into a longer answer on that is sure. I don't think that I loved the inherent value of soccer or I don't think I, I, I started working hard at soccer because I love the sport. I started working hard at soccer because I was good at soccer. And if we really dissect the things that we like doing, they're often the things that we're good at, or at least we perceive that we're good at. And it's the idea of flow. You know, you talk about like getting in the zone, flow. You know what I'm talking about when yeah, I say yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, you know, it's it's where your your talent meets your expertise, or your expertise meets your the difficulty, right? It's right at that juncture. Um, that's really what we all seek. We, another way of saying, we all seek things that we're good at. So when we talk about uh, myself, or really I think all professional players, we don't actually inherently love the sport. You know, most MLS players don't actually watch that much soccer MLS. Right. They do it because they're good at it. And we all like the idea of feeling valued and feeling, feeling worthwhile in what we do. Right. Yeah. No, that's a very, that didn't really answer the specific no, question. No, 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 but it was, but it, but it does in a way because it's like, you know, how do I put, I know a lot of people who are, who are good at something. And uh, I was listening to, uh, what was that? I was listening to uh, to another show, and this this uh, announcer was talking about how he didn't he didn't love he was he was a professional wrestling announcer, right? And somebody asked him, they were like, you know, is this what you always wanted to do? And he said, no, I love baseball. I wanted to announce for baseball. I kind of stumbled into wrestling. And it turns out I'm very good at at announcing like like doing the play-by-play -play for professional wrestling mm -hmm. so i leaned into it but it's not something i get like inherent joy out of and i don't watch it when i'm not working it but it's it's something i do and has allowed me a, afforded me a great living and people seem to like me doing it so i will keep doing it and that was the first time i'd really ever thought of like oh this guy's doing it because he's good at it and and he can also not like it and there's this this you know uh this pu push and pull with that and i think you just hit the nail on the head right away Right. So the other part to this too, um, you know, coming back to John, my friend that was a swimmer and played soccer is right. I just, I, I'm a big, everything I do has to have a payoff. 
Sure. You know, when I say that, even when I play video games, like you, you were playing FIFA or Madden, yeah. I said to play the career mode. Oh. People never want to play one game. Yeah. I'm like, then you just play one game, and it was essentially a waste of those 10 or 12 minutes. I, w- I was a big know, career mode life. player too, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was just so like, I can't just pick that, up like and play. Yeah. I'm really enthralled by the idea of greatness, of like being good at something. Because when you're good at something, then you can actually bring value into the world. And sure. I know this changes when you have kids. I had somebody explain to me the other day, and there's probably something you discuss all the time on this podcast, <laughs> is that kids bring meaning to your life. Right. Well, short of that, none of us really have any meaning in our life. And the meaning we have is the is the productivity and the value we bring into the world. And it's really hard to do that unless you're great at something. Yeah. No, so I would yeah. say most of my activity is like I don't really want to do it unless I'm on a path to greatness in it. And yeah. I know that's a trivial statement of like, you know, it's, it's kind of a lame that that person says that. Um <laughs> But, you know, like, you know, obviously I'm not actually that close to greatness of anything, but at least I feel like I'm on the path. And that makes all the, you know, like the sacrifices and suffering of these menial tasks worth it. Sure. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, man, it's just, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I was, it was thinking about the fact that uh, we had a guest on, on the show not too long ago is Juan Vidal and he wrote a book called Rap Dad. And he talks about the fact that, uh, you know, his he's 37. And so his generation was raised on hip hop and, 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 you know, they were the counterculture generation that really kind of started it. And, and he talks about the fact that, you know, he wanted to rap and, and be an MC and that was his passion. He pursued it and pursued it and pursued it. And they got to the point where he was like, uh, I really want to just write about it. And so he wrote about his experiences and he wrote about, you know, his life and his memoir in the same kind of way that you wrote about yours, because you're like, I'm, I'm, I'm done doing this, but I want to share my slant and my perspective because I feel that it's going to bring value and it's going to add perspective and it's going to be something that's not already out there, you know? Right. And so, right. Yeah. So talk us through. So now, now, now we built up a, a, enough, and I feel listeners have gotten to know you a little bit. I want, I want you to talk us through the FC Dallas portion. So kind of chat, chat me up about your kind of early excitement with FC Dallas, your stumbles, your clashes with the coaching staff, and your perspective. And and I'll give a little bit of my perspective as well. Which, which your perspective was not uh, that far off from a perspective that I held as well. Yeah. So I get, I get, I get drafted to Dallas. What I should say about that is. When I went to the draft, I knew that I was somewhere in a late first round, early second round range as a draft pick. But when I showed up to the convention center with the you know the big draft room, I didn't know where I was going. And my parents and I were talking on the way there where the different options would be. Oh my god, it'd be so cool to go here. It'd be so so cool to go there. But what none of us said was really the only single preference that we had was that I wouldn't go to Texas. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't want to go to Houston. I didn't want to go to Dallas because um, my mom had grown up in Mississippi and through a variety of factors just grew to detest the South. You know, my dad's kind of a Yankee and a Pennsylvania Yankee through and through. But my mom grew up in Mississippi, but grew to detest the South. And I was raised my whole life that the South is, and I apologize to all the Southern listeners out there, but I should be open about this. But I was just raised with this bias against the South for a variety of reasons. You know, my mom, to put two and two together for you, my mom's Father was a science teacher and a researcher at Ole Miss, and her mom helped at a, a primarily black school okay. in the area. Okay, um, which just did not go that well for their family, you know, as you yeah. can imagine. Yeah. So we drive to the draft, and it's like anywhere but Texas, you know, God please. And then I show up, I walk in, I see my agent, I give him a hug. The first thing he says is, "I got a first round team for you. You're going to the first round, and nothing else." I'm like, "God, that's amazing. A dream come true. This is wonderful. Where am I going?" He says. 
Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> and I like literally soft that he didn't know this, right? He didn't know my preferences. His job is to get me drafted as high as possible. I make more money. He makes more money. Right. Uh, so anyway, nobody takes me until Dallas. I go 17th overall. But in that moment, you know, the second they hear your name, I was like, I'm all in. You know, I'm, I'm a Texan. I'm going to Dallas. This place took a chance on me. These coaches took a chance on me. I'm going to go make Dallas my home. It's going to be amazing. Um, and, and I did. You know, I was fully excited to move there to to get to know the people. I got in touch with like some long lost distant relatives who, who really brought me into the family. Um, but it just I got drafted to a place where the coach misconceived who I was as a player. Mm. And the best way I can describe that is about, you know, a third or halfway into my rookie year. I had had a couple run of games and then I had been benched. And I don't know if I had asked him for a trade. It was just clear that he didn't rate me. You know, he Mm -hmm. was, I was the one taking the most abuse every day in practice. He was yelling at me. I was the example that he would, there would be times when I would work my butt off and make a tackle and, and somebody else would mess up and basically Everything right. came back to my fault. Right. It was, which it was, is, you know, yeah, it was like the, the coach's favorites, uh, whoever they were could, could make a similar mistake or a greater mistake. And it's, it's overlooked, right. but it's something where it's like the coach has already decided through whatever factor that may be that you're not somebody right. that he particularly cares about. And you're going to have to jump right. through a lot of hoops to reverse that first impression. And it's not something that, right. you know, it's not something that like you mm-hmm. had control over as far as like the, the misrating, you know, I mean, but, but it is what it is. And so you're still stuck in that situation. Yeah. And, and I'm in his office one day and he's like, you know, I, I just, I need someone more athletic in the middle. You know, you're not athletic for athletic enough to do what I want. But the thing I have to understand, Joe, is at the MLS combine, they do a speed test. They do like a sprint and an agility. Right. And I got last in all of it. There is nobody in the history of my entire <laughs> life would have ever said I was anything, but very unathletic. So the fact that this man took me to this first round draft pick, which I was very grateful for, but ultimately it would have been better if I'd gone to the fourth round. Right. And I still believe this, as I think every athlete should would, that if I had been anywhere else, I would have had a much better career. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, we just, you know, I, I lasted out for almost three years there. Uh, and I, one, it was interesting. What I will say is I had another teammate who had a similar relationship with the coach, and the coach told him, you know, if I were to go anywhere, if I were to go to a new team, I would take you, I would take Bobby, I would take George, and I would take Zach. The thing about that is that the four names listed were the ones that he was the meanest to. Mm. And that's just kind of how he he coached. Mm-hmm. You know, he he took his – not took his anger, but used the people that could take it as the example to set a high standard. Sure. Um, and I, I personally think that that's a horrible way of doing it and that he was just like over-necessarily negative and – uh, and all these other things. Right. Um, but you know, as I've gotten older, I can understand that everyone leads in different ways. Um, and his just didn't work for that situation. Right. And, and, you know, it, it's interesting too, because right, your turn, your turn. No, 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 no. It's good. It's good. It's interesting though, because if you look at specifically Dallas since then, right, you've had Oscar Pereja come in, who's, who ushered in a pretty big youth movement, you know, and then now you've got uh, Luchi Gonzalez, who is ushering in. It appears to be an even bigger youth movement, and so, and so it's it. It almost makes me wonder, like to your point of if you were anywhere else, you would have succeeded. You know, if you were kind of like drafted to Dallas when Oscar was coaching, or drafted to Dallas like now. Like I understand it's different, like age, but I mean hypothetically speaking, and you know, would you be given that same chance? And and arguably, I think you would be. But you know, it's it's so hard to predict, especially now. I mean, the, the, 
the MLS draft just happened. And it's interesting too, because I was listening to you talk about how the draft is so much different, so much different, uh, so much different now versus when you were drafted, you know, and teams are really looking to fill out their, their USL affiliate teams and are really looking for depth pieces. And it's almost more of, I don't know if it was you or if it was someone else in the show, or if it was somewhere else, I heard it described as like almost like baseball and that people are drafting for their lower division teams to see who sticks around and builds back up. And so it's just, mm-hmm. it, soccer is constantly evolving, especially in this country. And it's almost, it almost feels like you kind of got drafted, like wrong place, wrong time, wrong shifting, like movements with the league. I, I feel like that, that's kind of fair to say, based on where we've seen soccer go in the years since you've been drafted and have played and then stopped playing. That was kind of a lot of rambling, but I, I feel like I made a point in there oh, somewhere. That's fair. <laughs> no, for sure. I think that's all a fair assessment. Uh, now, you, uh, I will say, you know, my perspective from from my end, and it was just, I, you, you were, like, just this personal anecdote. You always were somebody that was, like, super friendly to me, but always seemed a bit standoffish. And and so I always wondered if like, you know, so, so that was my impression of you. Like you were a super nice guy, but a little standoffish, which I mean, I'm nobody, so that's fine. Like I, you know, it, I have no problem with that, but it was like, it, then I started hearing rumors from like my grapevine about like, yeah, Bobby's just kind of got a short temper. Bobby's kind of a guy that's real temperamental. Bobby's somebody that's like, I don't know if he's going to have the emotional intelligence to play here. I know you're familiar with that phrase. Um, and and so it made me almost wonder, I'm like, is this true or is this just more of a, a situation where the person is very not, um, not uh, what's the, like, not out- outgoing, but is like, uh, uh, shoot, what am I trying to say? Um, reserved, right? I don't know if this person is, is really how you're describing him or if he's just somebody who's reserved and internalizing a lot and is focusing more on his craft. And it like through the memoir and through talking with you since it's like, no, it's, it's the latter. You're very, you know, focused on your craft, focus on what's in, uh, in front of you. And you're very like, you're working, you're doing, it's almost like you're doing a cost benefit analysis of every interaction and everything you're doing. Right. Especially when you're playing, it's like, is this bringing value to my craft? Is this bringing value to where I am with my career? How can I get better? How can I bring greatness? How can I, how can I, how can I, and that can come off looking one way when in reality, it's something totally different. So that was just my perspective. Yeah. What I would say about that is we were all so beaten down in that locker room Mm -hmm. that, uh, I, I just don't think we had it in us. I think we were at our bare minimum for what we could tolerate around other humans. Sure. So I get that. I feel proud. I feel proud that you thought I was still kind and like nice and in minor <laughs> ways. But I just don't think I think that in my soul, I just did not literally have it in me after those training sessions to be anything more than that. Oh, I, and I'm happy. Yeah. I'm happy that I still met a bare minimum of kindness. <laughs> um, but there, there's actually no part of me that it's funny for him to say that. I've had a short temper at other parts of my career when I was younger, mm-hmm. but also my, I mean, I was like, I was a first, second, third year pro in Dallas. I wasn't losing my temper to the coaches or anything. And you weren't um, like a 17 year old homegrown player either, you know, like, no. or, right. In college, my last two years in college, my coaches would tell you that they've never been around like a more professional prepared player. You know what I mean? And yeah. I, I hope that that probably does come off as like, wow, this, this guy is, you know, full of himself. Um, <laughs> no, it's just acknowledgement. I wasn't, I wasn't good at some things, but my temperament and my emotional intelligence, I was very good at. And it was just a coach who, yeah, 
I mean, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, no, I get it. I don't want to. I don't want to dive too more, uh, too much deeper on air. But yeah. um, we can chat a little bit off air. But um, uh, yeah. I want to pivot a little bit though from Dallas. I, I remember there was a really interesting part of the book, and it was interesting because I knew this didn't happen um, to fruition when you're trying to chase a club in Israel. Uh, mm-hmm. Like I knew it didn't happen because I know your career, but I still was like, oh, I think he's. I think it's going to work out. I think it's going to work out. I think it's going to work out. <laughs> and I was still like, like I, I don't know. It's like I knew I knew the end result, and I still was hoping it would work. But talk us through like the most one of the like. Like that's a real convoluted, crazy story, and and listeners can feel free to check out the book for the full details. But talk us through like was that the craziest kind of amount of hoops you had to jump through to try and get on with a club, or were there other stories or other things that you didn't flesh out enough, or that you maybe left out in the book that you'd like to touch on? No, that was definitely the the craziest thing that I had. <laughs> I think it's the craziest thing that anyone I know has had. I mean, I tried other things, right? Like, you right. know, I talked to people in in China and South Korea at one point. But going to Israel was definitely because one thing I should add is I, I went I attempt to go to Israel because I have a the opportunity to get a, an Israeli passport, but I'm not really Jewish. You know, I have it in my ancestry. My dad and his great grandparents emigrated from uh, Russia and spoke Yiddish. Okay. But so this idea within like a one week span, someone like, Hey, I have this team. I think you might be able to qualify. Here's a contract offer to me being like full go Jewish, getting an Israeli passport. <laughs> like they the people were like, I don't know if you want to sign off on this. Cause you can go into the Israeli army. And I was like, let's, I'll, I'll deal with that later. Would you, so, so so wait wait wait, wait, wait wait let's uh, let's not let's not paper over that. So I I don't th- I feel like I missed that in the book. So like if you if you theoretically got on with this team and you were playing for them and you got so is it just by virtue of having an Israeli passport that you could go into the military or I don't even know what the military structure is like in Israel. That's how little I know about about them. Yeah, every every able-bodied male and female does government service. But their point was that, listen, you don't, you don't know how to shoot a gun. You don't speak Hebrew. Sure. You're not going to get selected into this. And people are like, no, you still might. Like, you might have to go work in an office somewhere. You might have to do your two years of service. But at that time, I was just it – was it was a good career. It was a very good career move with a decent contract offer. Right. And, you know, when you're in that mode, when, and I think everyone's experienced this at some point, you know – you see the next step and it's such a good step that you just have to take it and you can't fathom not taking it because it's what's best in the moment. Right. So you know, I'm glad, I'm glad it didn't work out in the end. Right. But yeah, that was probably the, cra- that was the craziest thing I went through. I, is it similar to like, cause I know, I think I actually heard about it through uh, Extra Time Radio where they were talking about uh, South Korea has something similar, but if you do something of value for the country, you're waived of that mm-hmm. designation. Is that is that an accurate assessment or did I just totally screw that up? Yes. In South Korea, same thing. Every I don't know about women, but every male at least has to go into service, except if you've, if you've done something like won a gold medal or won some other prize. So almost all players have to take off, you know, at some point either have to like win an under 20 Asian championship or under 23 (laughs) or have to cut their career short. Wow. So like the 2002 uh, South Korean team, oh, they finished in fourth. Is that fourth? Right. But that would have been good enough. I think that got got the whole generation of players off the hook. Okay. Perfect. Uh, Good for them. Um, (laughs) uh, I want to talk about, uh, 
really, how do you think that parents and kids can have a healthy approach to sports or, or can they, what's your perspective on that? Ooh, (laughs) that is a really, really good question that I I definitely don't have a good answer to, (laughs) but I can tell you that, and I'm, I'm really want to hear your answer to this, but it's something I think about, you know, I'm not sure that I want my kids to play sports. Um, and you know, what's weird about it is I think I'd rather them play individual sports than team sports Yeah, because I think that I learned a ton of value team building skills, but I'm not sure my peers did. And my <laughs> least favorite part about being in the team sport is that it's not directly tied to how hard I work. Sure. You know, I want my kid to play in a sport like tennis where it's, if you go out and do your 10,000 reps, you will be better than the kid that does 9,000, you know, maybe right. not directly better. Because natural talent doesn't right. matter, right? But I, but I know what you're talking about. I, I was thinking about this <laughs> this uh, the other day, actually, prepping for this this episode, and it's something where it's like I played. I mean, I played hockey and and uh, uh, quite a bit all the way through high school, and then and then stopped. But it was something where I learned a lot of good, valuable team building skills, specifically about like even if you have somebody you don't particularly like, you need to work together for a common goal. But I will say something that I've recently realized is that there are a lot of times in my life, uh, corporate world or however, you know, uh, different aspects where I, I almost feel like I sacrifice my gain for the overall teams, quote unquote teams gain. And I think that that can be a hindrance. Whereas if you're in an individual sport, like you talked about, you would think that you would be more motivated to chase after what's best for you and your situation first and then start learning, like, how can I bring others with me? It's just an interesting approach. And I, I think there's value in, in both, but it's really difficult to figure out who's going to fit best where and really even if they should do sports at all. Can they get the same lessons from something else? I don't know. I also did theater. There's, you know, team building lessons there, but also there's the same thing with like, yeah, but if you don't go after the lead, then someone else is going to get it and you're going to be stuck in like fifth row chorus. So like, exactly. Yeah, exactly. This is the thing about sports. You know, it's, they're somewhat zero sum within a team. And especially the better you get people that aren't starting or that people that aren't starting, especially at the professional level, want the team to lose. You know, I'm from Eagles country. And everyone <laughs> saw what happened with Carson Wentz and, and Nick Foles last year. Yes. And I can tell you, I, I don't know Carson Wentz personally, but I'd be very shocked if he wanted, if he wanted the Eagles to win the Super Bowl. Yeah. Cause he personally gained nothing. Yeah. Right. The idea that the idea that we all want, we want a team after the age of like 12 years old, we want a team to win as much that it helps us in some way. Sure. I mean, so look, and, and yeah. when I look around our office, when I look around the world, it doesn't seem to me that there's plenty of people out there that didn't play high level sports that are doing just fine. Yeah. Uh, yes, most definitely. Uh, speaking about people playing high level sports, though, I, I really want to since we're kind of talking about uh youth and and sports as well I, I want you to talk to me a little bit about your perspective in the differences between a Freddie Adu and a Christian Pulisic with regards to youth mm-hmm. development and exposure and approach and for those who are not as well educated with soccer terms and names I'm throwing out Freddie Adu I feel like most people might be aware of he was the 14 year old teen phenom that was signed with DC United big splash was hailed as the next Pele at one time and Christian Pulisic is the next, like the current hot thing in American soccer right now. He's playing in Germany, and he is 
just getting better every day. So that, you know, like it's one was supposed to be the hot take and one currently is for now. And it's, I just really want to get your perspective on both of them. Uh, so I don't, my general insight on this is extraneous factors. You know, I wish that there's some clear line to say that Christian was better at this and better at that. Right. Um, but I do think that perhaps if we were to roll the dice again and, you know, put them both back at age 14, that Christian would be this far ahead of Freddie is pretty unlikely. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was probably a problem that we anointed Freddie too early and that we gave him so many things, we made it easy for him, whereas Christian had to struggle a little bit more going to Germany. And I do think there's value in that struggle and fighting through adversity. Sure. Uh, but I just, one thing, I think one thing our, our national soccer community does poorly is forget that like, there's just a ton of luck involved in these things. Yeah. You know, having the right day in front of the right coach and then getting promoted to a team that, that with a coach that believes in you and plays a system that works for you. I love Christian Pulisic, you know, as much as anyone else, but I think the idea that he would have succeeded 10 out of 10 times is absolutely nuts. You know, I think Dortmund was the perfect place for him at the perfect moment. Mm-hmm. And if he had gone to almost any other club, he probably wouldn't have been. He certainly wouldn't be where he is now, but he probably wouldn't even have been, you know, anywhere close to where he's at now. Right. I mean, you look at Landon Donovan, too. Like he was in he was in Germany kind of getting passed over for a while. And then he comes he gets the opportunity in MLS. And, and if he doesn't come to MLS, I don't know what happens to his career. I mean, I would think he has enough talent that he was he'd be able to make it through. But. But because he did come to MLS, play in San Jose, and then play for LA, and then you know do a bunch of different stuff, he was able to have the career he had. To your point about luck and timing, right? And I think the other thing too is that I think Christian has the grit. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the number one variable in all these things is is how much you're willing to work through adversity. And Christian has grit. You know, it doesn't go that well. He fights hard. He loves the game. He trains every day. He works on the craft. And I don't think Freddie had that intangible. You know, Freddie was extremely talented. But it doesn't seem like anybody would ever call him gritty mm-hmm. or willing to do the dirty work. Yeah, and I think and I think there are a lot of other factors at play there as well. I mean, I remember, I remember a story that uh, a, f- a friend of mine, former Dallas player Jordan Stone, told me because he was on the youth team with uh, with Freddie Adu way back when, and he told me the story about how Freddie. He said one one camp we got together. Nobody knew who Freddie Adu was. Nobody. I mean, we're playing, we're traveling. This is the U twenty team. And he said, and then we reconvene about a month or two later, and the announcement came out with Freddie signing with DC United. And all of a sudden, all these girls and all these women and all these fans are just taking notice and are asking for his picture and all this stuff. And it was just overnight celebrity sensation, right? And he goes up to Jordan and is like, I don't understand what what's happening. What why what's happening? And he's like, Dude, you are you are it like you are top news you have made it with regards to like pop culture mainstream like you like you're the you're the current hot thing and like you weren't that like five minutes ago and now you are but you got to be you know you just gotta take care of yourself and he said it was it was so crazy to see in freddie's face just like the 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 he hadn't grasped it at that moment that like oh oh shoot like this is really this is real like, this is real, and this is all on me, and this is like what America has decided for me. Like this is it. Yeah. And and I. You know one yeah. thing. One I do have a question for you based sure. on this. So I coach U16s now, which I know isn't you know quite your age range yet. But one thing I struggle with is I want to take all the adversity away from them. 
you know, I want to, they have a bad practice. I want to pat them on the back and tell them it'll be okay. They don't get a drill. I want to say, sorry, it's my fault. I didn't explain the drill to you. Uh, they lose a game. I want, if they have a problem at home, I want to be like, let me help you solve that. And what I have struggled, what I have struggled with is the balance of how much adversity is advantageous to the kid. Mm. You know, how much do they actually need to struggle to grow? You know, where do you stand on that with how much you want to help answer the problems for, for the child versus you need to let that let them work through it? You know, that's a very that's a very good question. And I, I was talking about this with my friend Tyler Watson uh, on the last episode. And and and, you know, it's you have to walk that line because you don't want you want to raise kids that are tough and determined, but you don't want to raise them to where. Like they're, they, they need that adversity in order to, to do anything. And then I think about my daughter, I took her rock climbing when she was, uh, not quite two and she, you know, she absolutely loved it, but she got to a part that was really hard and she got kind of stuck and, and I was yelling up to her cause I was blaming her. And I, and I said, you know, you, uh, I'm not going to bring you down until you're at the top. Cause you're almost at the top. You've already made it. If you come down now, then it's, then then the next time that you're stuck, you're not going to know the way past it. So I talked her through, like grab, grab the next hold, pull yourself up with your arms, push yourself up. And on another one, she was stuck and, and my wife was blaming her and I, I climbed up the opposite wall and showed her how to do it. And, and my biggest part was, and then she got done and she was like, that was great. I did it. And she didn't want to do that wall again, but she wanted to do another wall. And the whole point of it, when I was done, I told her, I said, I don't mind if you choose to do it or if you choose not to do it. That's not the reason that I wanted you to finish it. I wanted you to finish it because I knew that you could do it and that you just couldn't see your way over the next obstacle. But next time you come up against it, you know you can do it, but it's now your choice on whether or not you, you, you want to go down that path. And so it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a constant battle. But for me, the perspective I've adapted is let's, you know, let me try and point you in the direction and talk you through it, but I can't do it for you and I'm not going to do it for you, but I'm not going to let you quit just cause kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. But, uh, right. but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I've not solved parenting by any means, uh, nor do I claim <laughs> to, but, but no, it's, it's, it's an important question to keep asking again and again and again for certain. I wanted to, before we start getting up out of here, I know we're, we're short on time. Uh, before we wrap up with some dad jokes, I wanted to know, is there a, uh, what's your crazy, so I, we, we've talked through some of your crazy player stories. Now you're an analyst, you're doing a lot of reporting for Major League Soccer, you're, you're going to games, you're reporting the draft. What is, uh, what's one of your most craziest recent stories that you've had happen to you, happen to anybody you, you do the podcast or the shows with, or just in general that you've seen or been a part of? That you can Ooh, talk about crazy <laughs> stories. Maybe maybe it's a good thing that I don't have many crazy stories from this year. Uh, I would say maybe the coolest thing we did. Well, uh, maybe the craziest thing I did was the touchscreen segment with Greg Berhalter. Oh, that was so and cool. That was so cool. Well, and the reason is, and I, I text my brothers about once a year with a new thing. And I remember when I was a player that. Alexi Lawless followed me on Twitter and I texted my brothers, Andy and Chris, because we all grew up soccer fans. Yeah. You know, our dad was a soccer fan. We want, we went to the 94 world cup. We would order soccer games on pay-per-view. Like when champions league finals oh, yeah. weren't on TV yet, <laughs> yeah. we were ordering them on pay-per-view. So we just grew up, you know, these intense soccer fans. So for one of us get followed by Alexi Lawless on Twitter, 
was really cool. And I texted my brothers, you know, in like 2012, because guys, like, you know, I've made it. Right. Uh, and then, you know, you know, like I think uh, maybe a couple years later, I, you know, had like a, I like met Alexi and like Twit Taylor, you know, you mm-hmm. hit this new threat, this new milestone. Right. Um, and here I am in life, like interviewing the new U.S. men's national team coach, but not just like shaking his hand. Like I'm doing one of the definitive pieces on how he's going to play soccer at a touchscreen. And it was just one of those moments to say, I went from sitting on the, on the floor with my brothers watching the national team in a world cup to now getting to interview the new head coach who could lead them to the next head. And that was just a really cool moment for me and, and really for my, my whole family. Um, so that was, might've been the craziest thing I've done. That's awesome. All right. Well, Bobby, thanks so much for being on the show. I know that we uh, one of the last things we like to do on the show before we let our guests go are, is uh, I, I always like to throw some dad jokes because this is a, uh, primarily a parenting podcast. So before I uh, pepper you with my grown-worthy dad jokes, are there any that you would like to provide? Well, they're not – I mean, they're very bad jokes. Oh, obviously. there's no such my thing. Dad, <laughs> my dad does things like if we all go out to dinner as a family – or not even as a family, just a couple of us – since I was a little kid, he even does it now that I'm 30 and my brother's 39, 36, where if we all go out to dinner, he'll be like, he'll look at the bill and be like, oh, cheap date. <laughs> or when I was playing uh, and I missed I missed a shot, he would say, he would yell from the sideline. My, brother, my dad didn't really yell from the sideline. He was a really good parent like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. But he would always yell if I missed a shot. There's a goal there for a reason. <laughs> and, you know, when you're like 12 years old, it was funny. Right. You know, by the time I was like a senior in college and I missed this like big shot in a Pac-12, you know, crucial game. My dad right. yelled at it. I'd be like, I actually want to come kick you in the face right now. <laughs> uh, oh, that's but yeah, my dad's got a couple of those quirky little <laughs> sayings that he still says. And what's funny now is my oldest brother's kids and my my – so – we we all do the same things. These things we used to make fun of him for, right. we all do now. That's so funny. Uh, okay, so here I've got some. So- I uh, picked up three soccer related jokes for you. I figured you would appreciate that. Uh, so the first one I've got, uh, uh, Bobby. Why did the soccer ball curse so much? God, uh, I don't know why. Because he gets a kick out of it. God, I should have known that. <laughs> All right, I've got two more. Uh, why did the soccer player bring string to the game? Because he was. Uh, okay, I don't know. Why did why to tie the score? God. Okay. All right, all right. Last one, last one. Uh, what do you call an Englishman in the knockout stages of the World Cup? A three, a lion. Uh, I can't. Know if I'm gonna go zero for three on this, but give me the answer. A referee. A ref. What do you call it? An Englishman, because they don't make it. They don't make it past uh, the first round because they're uh, they're not okay, great. That's good. Yeah, that's good. That's, a little bit. That's, that's where I was going there. Right, right. I'll, you're right. That was a good one. <laughs> All right, very cool. So, Bobby, if our listeners want to follow you or see what you are up to, mm-hmm. what is the best way for them to do that? Ooh, so I mean, I tweet every now and then at B Warshaw fourteen. If you're curious about any of the book stuff or any other stuff I've done, bobbywarshaw.com. Okay. Um, and what I I'll circle back to your first question because I didn't actually answer your first question on why the memoir. Um, and the answer is, which is probably most applicable to your podcast, is that I had read a lot of sports memoirs, and they're written by the best of the best, you know, the MVPs, the World Cup players. And I just said, I don't think that is, A, actually what a real professional athlete's life is like. You know, that's the 0.01%. 
But B, I don't think that's an accurate representation of really what any life is like. Right. So in doing the memoir, I thought that I could do a more honest reflection of, you know, the professional athlete experience, but also just as a human. And I do think that there's a ton of value in being honest about these things, which is why I think your podcast is so great, because when you peel back, it just everyone connects, everyone feels better. Um, and that's what I want to accomplish. And that's why I think what you do here is so great. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Uh, we need a hashtag for this episode. Uh, should we go with hashtag flow or hashtag in the zone? Oh, uh, I like, let's go flow. All right. Hashtag flow. All right, listeners. Well, uh, you know, just in a couple days, we'll have another great detox episode for you with another guest that I'm super excited about. Uh, but until next time, hashtag flow and hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Detox Podcast, or visit DetoxPodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit VocalNow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.